You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with producer and director Alan Poole. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. It's important to remember that all great work comes from the need to say something. And so this is the challenge for young artists and also maybe one of the essential elements that can never be completely taken over by AI is that there has to be something that you feel has not been said, that you feel an urgent need to say that in fact, you can't not say it. And that is what gives birth to unique expression, which is where all of our visual arts and performance arts and creative arts come from. I was always a film and theater kid. I just was completely starstruck and only wanted to have some kind of contact with showbiz. Didn't really understand in what creative shape that would take. When I was young, I just, I had a, a series of mentors who I kind of was a willing polite to who shaped my aesthetic. And it's because of the towering strength of those people that I said, this is someone you have to kind of, you know, just go and sublimate your own desires and learn from. And that's kind of where my gut came from. I mean, in my case, it was when I was trying to work in theater, I had Stephen Sondheim was a close friend and advisor for the period when I was trying to work in theater. And he, you know, really changed how I think about art. And then before I went to do Mishima, I spent three years working with Robert Wilson, the great international stage director, who was a complete genius and I adore him. And he just being an apprentice to him and being one of his many producers working on his big international projects was a hugely formative and, and nurturing experience. And then finally Schrader, because Schrader just sort of said, here, you're going to work in movies, come with me to have some kind of contact with showbiz. Didn't really understand in what creative shape that would take. Look, I'm a gay man and I was fortunate to be able to be out in Hollywood in the nineties and be able to work early on in my career on some of the sort of seminal LGBT presenting shows. Partly it's having been in the right place at the right time, but I was, you know, to be able to work on the Tales of the City series with Armistead Martin and then to be able to do Six Feet Under with Alan Ball, which I think made great strides in the depiction of Keith and David as a couple. When we were moving past all images of gay people on TV, queer people must be unrelentingly positive into, we have our flaws too. And we can be presented as people who are just as fucked up as the straight people around us. And so it's, I feel like I've been very fortunate to be able to do that when it comes to Tokyo Vice, I did push hard for there to be a queer storyline because especially in that time in the late nineties in Japan, there was a huge thriving gay subculture. And I know from the time I was there as a student, I was, I sort of came out in Japan when I was my junior year of college there. At that time, late nineties, where many Americans were very comfortable being out of the closet in their work lives, as well as in their social lives. That was just not a thing in Japan yet. It just wasn't on the table to come out because even if you were, your sexual orientation was considered irrelevant to your obligations to society. I think that it, for anybody who considers themselves an artist working in the medium, you have to be grounded 
you have to have some understanding of your own personal aesthetic. As a television director, you're closer to a hired gun sometimes than to the, you know, auteur. And so you're there to serve perhaps the aesthetic of the showrunner or, of you know, the story elements of the series or visual elements that have already been established for two seasons. But even so, if you're not grounded in your own aesthetic in terms of what's good, what's bad, what do you aspire to? What do you not aspire to? What do you think is cheap? What do you think is priceless? It's very hard to make things work because you have to trust your instincts. And so you have to have spent, I think you have to have spent enough time in the trenches owning those instincts in order that you can just say, no, I just have a feeling. I feel this way. And you can respond based on your gut feelings because you know that they hew to some kind of coherent aesthetic. I think that, first of all, I have to say that as an American, the fact that most Americans are not exposed to learning a second language until they're in junior high school is a great failing of our culture because being able to take on, being able to separate thought from language is before your 10 or 11 is what really makes it possible to master a second language. And that's why, I, you know, in countries where children are routinely raised bilingually, I think there is a broader perception of humanity in some ways. But for me, having had to be a literal translator as well as a cultural interpreter for many years since when I got out of college, I worked three years at the Japan Society in New York. And I would be both the curator of the film and theater series and so write essays and plan retrospectives of Japanese actors, film actors and directors and theater companies. But also when those personages would arrive, I would serve as their personal translators as well. So I was dealing with both both the literal and the more broadly cultural form of interpretation. And it really, it just, it opened up my eyes to the unique culture, the unique ways in which your culture is so affected by how you form a sentence. That things like items like grammar and syntax are actually key in helping us put our deep cultural thoughts into words. And so it's, it's kind of hard to get to the heart of the differences between Japanese culture and Western culture without at least getting someone involved in how that manifests itself linguistically. Season one of Tokyo Vice is based on a memoir by Jake Adelstein, who is obviously a real person who still lives in Tokyo and who went to Japan in the 90s and actually graduated from a Japanese university, became fluent and very eloquent in not just spoken, but also written Japanese and was the first non-Japanese person ever to pass the highly competitive entrance exam for the Yomiuri Shimbun, which is the biggest of the big daily newspapers in Japan. So he did something truly unprecedented. And he was put on the crime beat and worked as a crime reporter for this newspaper. And he was chasing stories and publishing stories in Japanese. But still, I mean, obviously, for, in order to do that, you know, the Jake had to have a certain intrepid nature. And he also kind of relished the bull in the China shop aspect of his job. And so by coming in contact with him, I think we show this pretty well in the show, the kind of weird intersected relationships between journalism and the police and the world of organized crime, the Yakuza. It meant that for many Japanese journalists, their hands were tied often. There were many reasons why they couldn't break stories about the Yakuza that might put 
the newspaper or themselves or their families or other relationships of theirs or relationships with sources into danger. And, and Jake was not being beholden to Japanese society as a whole, was able to break some of those strictures. So Jake broke a story about a very notorious, one of the most powerful Yakuza Oyabuns or bosses. And his breaking of that story made him very famous, put his life in danger and became the basis for his memoir, Tokyo Vice, which was published in 2009. I feel the show is different from most crime shows, or let's say, and I'm not trying to self-aggrandize, but in terms of a show dealing with crime, you know, the show has more in common with the wire than it does with most genre procedurals in that you find your way into the morality of the situations through the characters and that, and when there is violence and when there are consequences, you always feel the human cost of those consequences. And that means, you know, we take a little more time with our setup, but when we have the payoffs, hopefully it's more satisfying and a little more wrenching than it might be otherwise. I think that from JT's point of view, he loves all of these characters. And that even our, well, our biggest villain, I would say we, is the person that's Tozawa, we love to hate, but even a character like Ishida, who is the head of a crime family and who has been responsible for untold deaths of people. We always want to get them and see what worries them, what concerns them and see to what extent we can generate empathy on the part of the viewer. And I think that for JT and for us as filmmakers. It's always about putting the character in the context of what they're up against. And then, and this is the way season one was structured, but even more so in season two, and then putting each of our main characters in a situation in which they face both an existential crisis, meaning I could get killed for this, or on a lesser level, I could get fired for this. And then also a moral crisis where especially in season two, every one of our lead characters has to make a questionable moral choice, has to do something that they themselves know is wrong, but in the service of accomplishing a goal that they hope has a larger purpose to it. And so everybody goes a little bit to the dark side. Everybody, even Katagiri, Ken Watanabe's character, our, our most morally upstanding character in season one, is put into a situation later in the season in which he has to make some morally questionable choices. And so those choices that all of our characters make are the engines that drive the plot. So they make exciting or dangerous or suspenseful things happen. But even when that's happening, you're always aware of the moral consequences for the character in question. And that's what makes the moments powerful. I was offered Black Rain because Sally Jaffe and Sherry Lansing were the producers of Black Rain. And of course, this was a big Paramount movie with Ridley Scott directing and Michael Douglas starring and Michael coming pretty fresh off of his Oscar. And they called Paul and said, we're going to Japan to make a movie. What do we need to know? And he said, you only need to know one thing, hire Alan. I don't think the big... That wasn't necessarily the most accurate answer, but so I signed on and it was, you know, it was the opposite experience for me, It was a big American studio with a lot of money coming in and trying to have their way with the Japanese. And so it was, I have great memories of Black Rain. It was during the process. It was a very difficult experience. Often that forges the deepest memories. 
the things that you look back on most fondly are the things that you struggled with when they were happening. There will come a time when AI will have consumed and devoured all the works of all the great filmmakers. And you'll be able to say, I want you to cut this scene as if it was in an Antonioni film, or I want you to cut this scene as if it was in a Sam Peckinpah film and it will do the work of the edit. So sure, finishing touches will probably always be human, but I still think the amount of creative work that's going to be able to be offloaded to AI is something that we all fully comprehend yet. So I feel like I'm always telling young people, I know you want to make your own films and I know you think you know everything. And that's one way to do it is to take an iPhone and just make that terrible first feature and then learn as you go. But I'm such a, I'm such a believer in mentorship in when you have the time and when you're young, find people that you admire and put yourselves in their orbit and just absorb and it will serve you so well later in life. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.